0: John says, we're getting to that part in our overview of the Bible where Jesus arrives. And so we're going to read from Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1. And if you have a Bible, you might want to turn up uh, Luke chapter 1 from verse 26. So this is the announcement uh, of the birth of Jesus to Mary. And then we're going to read Mary's song as well. So Luke chapter 1 from verse 26. In the sixth month God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth the town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph a descendant of David the virgin's name was Mary the angel went to her and said greetings you who are sorry greetings you who are highly favored the lord is with you mary was greatly troubled at his words And wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Amen. We trust that God will bless his word to us today. Great. Well, if if you have a Bible handy, we'll keep it open at Luke chapter 1, and uh, we're thinking about the coming of the King, as uh, we said. So imagine you find yourself in a new land, a new kingdom, and you walk through this kingdom, and it's just full of abundant fields and vegetable gardens and so on, and you ask the farmers where all this has come from, and they say, well, these fields were provided for us by the king. And and there are these really, really well-built homes, and you speak to the homeowners, and you hear, well, these homes were given to us by the king, and you come to this wonderful palace, and you think, who lives here? And you discover that this is where the king lives, that you've heard so much about, and you think, wouldn't it be great if I could meet the king?" And we've been journeying through the Bible over these mornings, and we've really been waiting for the King. And today and over the next couple of weeks, we get to meet uh, the King because we've come to the arrival of Jesus. Now, you remember that the, the big theme that has been fo- we've been sort of following, that's been following us in our journey, is the kingdom of God. God's people We've summed it up in this way. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So we've come right from the very start of the human race. Adam uh, in the garden and he along with Eve. God's people in God's place in the garden under God's rule and blessing. God walking with them in the cool of the day. God speaking his word to them and initially them hearing that word and being obedient. But then, of course, them turning away because it didn't stay like that. They sinned. They sought to take God's place. They sought to be their own gods, and sin and death entered the world. And this is so important, isn't it, that we, we understand that, that this is what we understand about the, the great story of the world. So, the reason that your week has not gone the way that you wanted it to, the reason that you find yourself perhaps in conflict with others, the reason that you discovered sin in your own heart, the reason that you maybe uh, experienced ill health, the reason that you hear of murders or war or that uh, people have been bereaved, all of these things are traceable back to the first rebellion. Christianity really does have the explanation for why things are the way they are, and that's that's really important to remember that. You're going to go into work or into social settings this week, and there will be people with you, and they'll be trying to figure out why the world is the way it is, and they'll be, they'll be operating with an entirely different understanding than what we've just described, because they'll be thinking, for example, that everybody's basically good, and they just need the, the right environment, and all will be well. But they, they know that, that at one level, they know that that doesn't work out in practice. They, they try that as much as possible, but it doesn't work out in practice. And so they live with this constant question, gnawing away at them, what is wrong with the world, and what is wrong with me? And, and they can't figure it out, but, but Christianity tells us the world And us are created and therefore loved, and we are also fallen. And that's what makes sense of this world. It's really the only thing that makes sense of this world. Now, with everything gone wrong with the fall, Genesis 3, there comes a promise. One will come who will crush the serpent's head, the serpent, Satan, of course, who has tempted Eve and, and Brought this uh, dreadful situation about, and, and we read the rest of the Old Testament, waiting for that person. Along the way, we come to people like Abraham. God comes to Abraham and makes great promises to him. He will give Abraham a people, he will give him a place, the land, and he will bless him. So here we've got this promise of God's people and God's place and God's rule and blessing. And eventually, we get to the the king, to David and we ask well is this the one that we're waiting for is this the snake crusher and it turns out that he's not and and, and just like adam he feels too we see him to be vulnerable to temptation and capable of terrible sin and it's not just david all of god's people struggle to live in obedience with god it's not that they don't know they do know but their hearts lead them astray and eventually god's people are exiled out of the land you looked at that last week into Babylon. So, not only are they not enjoying God's favor at that point, but uh, they they have uh, been taken out of God's place, out of the land. So, so things are really, really bad. And you sort of wonder at, at that point, well, has God forgotten His promises? Where's the one who's going to crush the serpent's head? Well, there's a glimmer of hope because the exile doesn't last forever. God's people return to the land, to God's place, but, but actually not all of them return. Uh, all being well in autumn, we will uh, look at the book of Nehemiah that, that uh, starts to, to tell us that story a little bit, uh, and what we're going to see there is that it's really not everything that they'd hoped for. It's not how it was, and God's people still struggle, and, and they, they deal with some of the old uh, demons of the past, as it were and then we get to a strange time it's just one page in your bible it might be a an empty page it might be a blank page but it represents 400 years it's the time between the old testament and the new testament and they, there are wars and there are changes of political powers and all of that time empires come and go but but the key thing is that god's people don't really hear from god or oh, they have the scriptures but they have no prophets at that point. So God doesn't interact with them in that sort of direct sense that He had been. And, and it almost looks as if God's not bothering all that much with His people. And you sort of wonder, well, has God forgotten His promises? But of course, He hasn't. You, you think about promises for a moment. I'm sure, like me, you have broken promises you know, maybe your kids have rehearsed to you, but Dad, you promised, you promised we would go to McDonald's. And, and, and we, we, we drop our promises, we break them, sometimes because we don't follow through on in our intentions, sometimes because things happen that we can't control. In other words, we're weak and we're limited. But God is neither weak nor limited, He is powerful and infinite, and so when he makes a promise, it always comes to pass. Nothing happens that causes him to change his mind. He doesn't come up against any impossible scenarios, so his promises can always be relied upon. So we get to the end of the Old Testament, and God has not forgotten his promises. And amazingly, the king comes. He's the long-promised one. He is the one who will promise the serpents, uh, who will crush the serpents' head. And we see that even in the way that uh, Jesus is introduced to us, even in these readings. So, for example, in verses 32 and 33, He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So here's this king who comes in the line of David with an everlasting kingdom. He, he this is the this is the eternal king, you see. Mary makes it clear in her song too. You look at chapter 1 verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. That's Mary saying, God has promised to Abraham and His promises are now being fulfilled. It's part of what causes Mary to to be absolutely overwhelmed about what is happening to her. First of all, of course, that there's going to be a baby, but also that this baby is the fulfillment of God's promises, indeed of all of God's promises. So next door, the boys and girls are going to be thinking about the birth of Jesus And these stories are very familiar to us. We revisit them every Christmas. But for a moment or two, we we want to be sure who this promised king is. Who is this one who has come? There are all sorts of ways that we could answer that question. But I want to, to say this morning that he is the, because of everything we've been looking at, he is the second Adam, and he is a suitable Savior. That's our two little points just for now. When I came back from holiday, there was a book waiting for me, one that I'd ordered, and it was a book by John D. Rhodes on who Jesus is, on the person of Christ. It's absolutely super. And so I've been reading it this week, and, and this question of who Jesus is has been very much in my mind, and there's a few things I'm going to quote uh, from John D. I would really, really highly recommend John D.'s book. So first of all, who is this Jesus? He's the second Adam. So we've looked at how Adam uh, sinned and and everything went wrong, but Jesus is the second Adam. So there's an old hymn called Praise to the Holiest in the Height," and it has these verses, verses 2 and 3. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love, that flesh and blood which did in Adam feel should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. And and that's picking up a really important theme that's in Scripture, that Christ is the second Adam. He did what Adam failed to do. He undid what Adam did. He went right where Adam went wrong. John P. describes Adam In the garden like this, marvelously, he he, he takes some time to show us that Adam is a prototype prophet, priest, and king. And and then he describes it like this. A man was in a garden. He was a good man, holy, happy, healthy. But he was alone, and his father saw it. So the father gently put the man to sleep and pierced his side. From the flesh and uh, bone of the man came a bride And when the man awoke, he saw her and sang for joy. But there was a serpent in the grass. The serpent was full of poison, and unable to attack the Almighty Father, struck at the bride instead. The bride was in danger, but the man was there. The mighty king commissioned to protect her, the faithful prophet to warn her, the zealous priest to guard the holiness of his beloved in her sanctuary. It was time for him to Crushed the serpent's head. But the man stayed still. The man stayed silent. His sword stayed sheathed. The serpent struck and the bride fell. And so began the story of the world. You see, Adam failed. He failed as prophet, priest, and king. He had the responsibility to guard and fight for his bride. He had the responsibility to crush the serpent, but he did not. So, God promised that one would come, another Adam, a second Adam, who is Jesus, God's own son. He's the perfect king who would lay down his life. He's the perfect prophet who would not be silent. He's the perfect priest who would secure the holiness of his people again by the shedding of his blood. So, you see, Jesus goes right In every place that Adam goes wrong. Paul takes this theme up in Romans chapter 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks in Romans chapter 5 about being in Adam or being in Christ, being in Team Adam or Team Jesus. He talks in 1 Corinthians about Adam as the first man and Christ as the second man or the last man. Both, therefore, are representatives. In other words, it's almost as if there are only two men in the Scriptures. When they fail or when they succeed, that is what has implications for everybody else. We're we're tied to them. You, You maybe remember, we've used before the illustration of the old Puritan, Thomas Goodwin. He imagines two giants in the Scriptures, one called Adam, one called Christ. And each giant has a belt with millions of little hooks on it. And every person who has ever lived or will ever live is hanging from these hooks from one belt or the other, from one giant or the other. And if you hang from Adam, you share in the experiences of sinful Adam. Your relationship with God is, is in a sense, through him. But if you hang from Christ, then everything is different, and all of God's dealings with you are through Christ. So you can see how important it is that we are tied to Jesus, to the second Adam. And what happened to you when you became a Christian, if you're a Christian, what happened to you was that that God, as it were, took you and unhooked you from Adam and hooked you to Jesus. And we're hooked to him and to him alone. We've nowhere else to go with nothing else to do. So the coming of Jesus into this world is the coming of the second Adam. W- without him, the first Adam all that we have, that he's our only representative. We're hooked into him only. We're on the wrong team. But Jesus comes, and we may now be joined to him. See how important that is? Have You, you need to ask the question, have you been? Are you as you trace the the rope from you upwards, who does it end with? Adam or Jesus? We need to be tied to Jesus. So that's the first thing. As we see Jesus coming, in the light of this big story that we've been looking at, we've got to say he's the second Adam. And then the second thing we want to say, maybe more simply, is that he's a a suitable savior. He's a suitable savior. What is necessary for Jesus to be the snake crusher? What will make him a perfect king for us? What will make him a, a suitable savior? Well, he has to be both God and man. And we see this pointed to in the nature of Jesus' birth. He is born of the Virgin Mary. You see how the angel announces, to Mary, her coming pregnancy. And Mary responds in verse 34, How will this be? Because I am a virgin. And Gabriel says, in effect, God will do this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, uh, John again picks this up. He he points out that, that Jesus not having a human father does not explain why he is divine and human. So he's, he's not half God and half man. That's really important. No, no the Holy Spirit's role here is to, to really say that, that salvation cannot come from within humanity. It must come from above. God has to work. We, we can't save ourselves. But nevertheless, the virgin birth points very clearly to Jesus' uniqueness as the God-man. He's not half man and half God. He is fully man and fully God. And this way, the the virgin birth, shows how God brings both divinity and humanity together. So his his full divinity is evident from the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And his full humanity is evident from the fact of his birth from a human mother. And and his perfection is also evident point it to. One of the things the Bible tells us is that we inherit our, our sin. We, we have both a guilt and a corrupt nature whenever we're born. That's why we don't have to teach our kids to do things that are wrong. It's already in them. And, and it's not the case that we enter this world neutral and then get ready to go wrong whenever we understand stuff. It's that we start off broken, and this brokenness is passed down to us from those who have gone before us. But the virgin birth signifies a break in that history. All of us are born with a bias to sin which we inherit somehow, which means that we're sinners, but Jesus' miraculous birth is a break with that line and signifies that there's something very different about this person, And as the story moves on we see that jesus is tempted in every way that we are and yet without sin now what about the fact that jesus is still born of mary how does he not inherit sinfulness from her well that's a question that we know has been answered differently by different strands of the christian church in the catholic tradition That problem, as it were, is solved by saying that Mary is sinless. In order to give birth to the sinless Son of God, she had to be sinless. That's what Catholicism teaches, but it teaches that actually relatively recently, in about the 18th century, I think, or maybe even the 19th century. But there's no support for that in the Bible at all. In the Bible, Jesus is affirmed as being without sin, but but Mary never is. She comes under all of those statements that the Bible makes about the human race, that no one is good except God alone, Mark chapter 10. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3. So, she was without doubt, as we've seen, faithful and godly, according to the gospel's pictures of her, but she's still a member of the sinful human race. So, how can She gave birth to a sinless Jesus. Well, simply the reformed churches have said that this is a work of the Holy Spirit in Mary. That this break with human sinfulness is just a miraculous thing that God does. That the Holy Spirit prevents that somehow. Remember in Luke 134 it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and therefore the child will be called holy. So there's an implication there that. His, Jesus' holiness is, is due to the operation of the Spirit. And the fact that there's something different about his birth points to this. He's the perfect one. He's the one who comes like the first Adam, perfect, but yet will go right where Adam goes wrong. So he's the, the one who is fully God and the one who's fully man. That means he, he represents man before we've quoted an old churchman, Gregory of Nazaranus, who who said, what is not assumed is not healed. In other words, Jesus fully assumed our humanity, that we might be healed. But he also represents God, because only God can offer salvation. It's against him that we've sinned, and it's only he who can justly forgive us. So therefore, he's a suitable saviour, C.S. Lewis put it like this, the Son of God became man to enable men to become sons of God. So you see, we're beginning to meet the King. We're going to see that the King amazingly dies, but today we see that He's the second Adam, and He's the suitable Savior. Now, I hope that that through these weeks, you're, you're getting some sense of the the dedication that God has in order to save you. This is what He's planned and worked towards. Every event for thousands of years before Jesus comes is all leading up to this. It's all about God rescuing you. In other words, God is very serious about your salvation and mine. And do you know what that means? It means he's not doing a half-hearted job. Don't you, don't you set out to do something and, and you, 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 you think, I, I'll really make a good job of that. Maybe it's a, a cake that you bake or something that you make in the garage or whatever it is, and you think, I'm going to make this absolutely perfect. And an hour later, you're saying, that'll do, that'll do rightly. Well, you know, God's not like that. The salvation that he has worked at for you is absolutely perfect. And so when he saves, he really saves you. No half-heartedness. It's a perfect plan. But it's also a necessary plan. I need to say this. There's no other way. There's no other belt to hang from. You're hanging from Adam or from Christ. So we need him. But because he's come, we may have him.